Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 129 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings. And 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer-songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by another legend in the industry. Virginia Turbot is my very special guest. A British rock music and social reportage photographer Known for her shots of bands, fans, and street culture, we're talking Sounds magazine, Smash Hits, The Face, ID. Her first photo assignment was the Sex Pistols shooting on their pretty vacant video. She captured all the scenes, music, the fans, the fashion, punk, heavy metal, mod, new romantic, reggae, two-tone, and electro-pop. She's travelled all around the world capturing bands and solo artists, including The Jam, The Clash, Blondie, Iggy Pop, Prince, U2, Andy Warhol, Frank Zappa, Nick Cave, Depeche Mode, Madness, and David Bowie. This is another very special guest on the podcast. Let's get into it. Virginia Turbot, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm looking really looking forward to chatting with you because there's so much of your life has been this, this love of music, this love of photography. But to kick things off, I'd love to know what came first. Was it the music or was it the love of the visuals, the image? Definitely the music. I became a a fan and that's where it all came out of me being a fan so I became a fan when I was nine ten the monkeys were were my first loves and I remember they played three nights at Wembley Stadium or Wembley Arena and I cried every night because they were there and I wasn't and <laughs> my mum wouldn't let me go oh no so, yeah so I loved I loved Davy Jones the best which was a really poor choice but you know typical <laughs> my sister had more taste she went for Peter Talk who was um, much more interesting. Yeah, and I do have a Peter Talk story. <laughs> oh, brilliant. What did, oh, yeah, you'll have to tell me that in a second. But I love the fact that, because the Monkeys, like, proper manufactured band, manufactured yeah. for the TV show. Right? I think the first time that happened, I think. Yeah, because they were auditioned, like uh, like they do these days, yeah, for the TV show. And, you know, there were some great musicians in them. I did make the mistake, having never seen the Monkeys, and it always being this trauma for me, obviously. I did make this mistake of going to see them in Plymouth, which is near me, about 20 years ago, something like that. And I walked out after four songs. Um, why? Because <laughs> it was just so sad. There were these old blokes. And the worst thing they did was there was all these old blokes on the stage surrounded by younger musicians who were propping them up. But behind them, they had footage of the monkeys the tv show running all the time so there was no getting away from the fact that they were beautiful young men and here all these 
doddery old bloke. So it was just really sad. So <laughs> interestingly, Mr. Weller wrote uh, with Noel Gallagher wrote a, a song for their final album. So Did there you is hear a me? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh my god! Now my interest is peaked. Okay, I shall have to check. That yeah, out. birth of an yeah. accidental pop star. I think it was called, if I remember rightly. But um, yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> so what was the story? What were you going to say? Well, the Peter Talk story. Yeah. So some years later, I think it's about 1981. So obviously I was a grown up by then. And I was in a club called Haraz in New York. And I was staying with a friend who worked at Sire Records. And she was great. She introduced me to loads of people. She was standing in this club and she suddenly turns around and says, Oh, Virginia, I want you to meet my friend, Peter Talk. And I'd had lunch with Frank Zappa that day. As you do. As you do. But this. Wow, me I just I just turned into this ten year old girl again and lost all my cool and um oh my god, Peter Tor, oh my god. And he said, How lovely to meet you, Virginia. And I just thought, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> And I, I can't remember, nothing much, you know, like that was the end of it. Really. I love that though, that kind of instant, you're back there, you're that 10 year old getting, crying into your pillow. Yeah, absolutely. I was just, you know, I always say that it was one of, you know, like I was in a room with Andy Warhol and spoke with him, but actually meeting Peter Talk was so exciting because it went back to exactly that. It went back to where I come from, from being a fan and loving, you know, these bands being integral to my my growing up. I had a friend who was very much older than me, so I was sort of aware of a lot of them, bands like Jefferson Airplane and The Doors. And, and then uh, in 1972, discovered Met was introduced to David Bowie. And of course, you know, then there's the very familiar story of, you know, David Bowie changed my life. And Well, it was Hunky Dory that started that, wasn't it? Was that right? Somebody gave it you a was. cassette. It was very good. Yeah, Hunky Dory. So I was in Cornwall and uh, met some guys from Bristol and they were camping on this cliff top where my family and I were in a caravan park and it was very wet and we were in the tent and they had a big cassette player and they put on Hunky Dory and they knew all about this guy. And that was it. I went home and I ordered the entire back catalogue, which was um, Man Who Sold the World Space Oddity, and then waited for Ziggy Stardust to come out, ordered that in advance. And, you know, the rest is history because Bowie was, you know, like lots of people say, who would I be if I hadn't had Bowie? And Yeah, incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible legacy and back catalogue. Bar maybe the Tim Machine stuff, that never did it for me, but a lot of the stuff. No, I loved all and the- I agree. There was a, I, I have a period when I wasn't interested, really. You know, the early stuff was definitely formative. And, and, there, and there is, you know, but who would I have been if I hadn't? Hadn't been sort of, and then Bowie introduced us all to Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground and all that. So I was, you know, I was really into gigs and, uh, I was, um, spending all the money that I earned babysitting buying tickets, loads of tickets so that all my mates could go. And I don't think anyone ever paid me back. I was always the one who sort of travelled to Portsmouth or London or Guildford and queue up to get the tickets and then um, make sure we got a driver. So I had to give the driver a ticket and give someone else to sit with. The, I don't know. It's like... <laughs> It was me getting the tickets. But it was such a social aspect of it, like you and your mates in it together, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, was, you know, I'd sort of, I'd have to get a driver and then usually I think I always bought three, four tickets. So um, there'd be two other people. And it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, we went up and down the A3 to gigs all the time through my school years. And of course, Bowie um, was in that. So, you know, that's where it came from. It came from being a fan. You know, I loved going to gigs. I loved, um, you know, when it was the monkeys, I was buying Fab 208. And when I, um, then after that it was NME. So Thursday mornings, the NME, you know, excitement, get, get off the bus, go straight into the newsagent, buy the NME. That was my Bible. Check out who was playing where. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Because how, how we consume our news about artists and how we discover new music is so different and plus in, and actually challenging as well, I think, because you're kind of served algorithms on Spotify and all that, but you don't get to read those interviews and find that information out about new bands in the way that you did, do you? No, I mean, it was, it was religious, you know, I mean, when I say it was my Bible, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I just absorbed everything in it. The journalists became kind of like my friends, you know, I, I sort of, I love, you know, people who I love, like Charles Sean Murray. And I just thought, my God, you know, he's got access to all these people. He's got a sense of humor and some I like more than others, but yeah, they became part of the sort of the family, waited every week to see where they'd been and who they'd been 
talking to and well amazing that some you know fairly soon after you're taking photos for that for the some of those publications that we talk about like sounds smash hits and that so let's link the journey then from this love of music to taking photos was this just an amateur thing where you take photos at gigs initially or how no, did that come about no one, no one took photos at gigs then really i mean very rarely no it was just an accident so i had no ideas about being a photographer or anything like that i didn't have any ideas about what I was going to do much. My boyfriend at the time, so this is 1977. Oh, the first, uh, there is a picture that I took at a gig and it must be 1973 or four, I think. It's Lou Reed at Crystal Palace garden party they used to have. And there's the the Crystal Palace bowl and there's a lake in front of it. And I waded into the lake up to about here in mud <laughs> and with a little instamatic camera. And I have these pictures of Lou Reed on the stage with these other wet people standing in front of me. I don't know. I, mean, I didn't have a change of clothes or anything. It was really deep, really wet. And then the, then the rain came down. James Taylor came on stage and there was this whole fire and rain thing and the lightning came and he had to run off stage. And by which time, you know, I was just so, and somehow I, Got in the car and drove all the way back to West Sussex. I didn't drive; I was driven. And um, I remember my mum the next day saying, "How did your clothes? <laughs> get so much? What?" She said, "I put them through like four washes." And I said, "I said oh, I walked through a puddle." <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so that was the first thing I ever photographed, and I've got this picture in my. It's this tiny little picture, and it's so faded, but it's on a montage that I have. I've made years and years ago in my bedroom, and that's my first ever music picture. So then after that, it was 1977, and my boyfriend at the time um, had been to art school and knew other art school people. He had a camera. A friend of ours had been to America and was involved in starting Slash magazine there. And he came back and was sort of the UK correspondent for Slash magazine and asked me if I'd like to go along with him to interview a couple of bands and take the pictures. And he'd do the interview. And the first one was the Sex Pistols in June 1977 um, when they were recording Pretty Vacant. So... That's my first session. <laughs> That's your first gig. I love it. The first photography gig, the Sex Pistols. Oh, 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 huge. And let's talk about that explosion of punk because so many of your photos that people will know and love from that period are with those bands you know, of that time as well. And it was huge, wasn't it? And that, that kind of... Yeah, people have talked on the podcast about this being music for them as youngsters. Suddenly you had your own thing. But take us back there, if you would, Virginia. What, you know, what was it like being part of that scene? I can't say I was really part of the scene. I mean, I was living in Guildford at the time and I was aware, though, of this stuff going, you know, I wasn't like going to the clubs every weekend or anything like that. But what I became aware of very quickly was that it became accessible because growing up through the 70s, and, you know, rock had become this enormous, enormous machine and it was huge bands and it was all very precious. And and suddenly everyone was in a band and they were all practicing in their dad's garages. And not only were they forming bands and making fanzines, and but they were gigging as well. So... Everything which had seemed like impossible if you weren't Emerson, Lake and Palmer or Pink Floyd or some other god awful, boring, you know, these things became possible. And that was so exciting. And it revealed so much talent and genius. You know, on every cul-de-sac, in every street, there were these kids who were getting together and they're going, I can do that. Buying a guitar, coming together, you know, just that I can do that attitude. You know, you don't have to be assigned. You don't have to be on a big label. You don't have to have a manager. You don't have to, you know, and then there was Rough Trade and John Peel and everything. And people would take their cassettes up to John Peel and stand in the foyer. And I'd done that and, you know, sitting on, on the session, on the, the shows with him and everything was, was available. To, to create and it was extraordinary and the same with the photography I mean nowadays I and mean, then every now and again people get in touch and say you know what do I need to do <laughs> how do I get into this and I, I think well go back to the 1970s to late 1970s and you might stand a chance but I have no idea now but 
you know, there were fanzines, so people were printing and writing and taking their photographs and publishing them. People like me, who with no experience whatsoever, I had to, in the middle of my Sex Pistols session, I had to go to a camera shop in Tottenham Court Road and ask them to change the film for me. <laughs> um, people like me were getting their work published. And then there was this sort of serendipitous couple of events which led to me starting photography as a sort of job and at the same time having my work published in a major music magazine and this then takes you around the world so we're talking about you know all over europe or the usa and these huge artists people like the clash and blonde you mentioned frank zappa earlier on like iggy pop you mentioned like massive massive stars and musicians but they were all kind of starting out in the early days and then becoming huge successes it took off quite quickly in terms of your career and the success of it i, I would guess yeah i did suddenly find myself right in the midst of it really so i'd met Gary Bushell, who had just started on Sounds in 1978. I went on a, a, a political march called the Right to Work March in September 1978. And Gary Bushell um, came from that background and he was on the march and I met him there. He just started on Sounds and he asked me if I'd like to take pictures with him on Sounds. And he was covering all these new bands that were emerging, as I said, from these you know little towns and villages all over the country. So as I was learning photography, I was getting my work published. Then there were sort of bigger bands. I mean, The Clash, you know, were not big at that time. <laughs> they weren't, you know, The Clash lived around the corner from me. I was, I'd see them every time I walked out and went to the supermarket. But yeah, it was it was strange. And meeting, you know, people like Frank Zappa and pe people who I'd, Iggy Pop, and I would never imagined being in a room with, you know. So. Now let's talk about Mr. Weller. So the first time you saw the jam play live, I think I'm right in saying 1979 Sheffield University. You're absolutely um, right, yes. Well, am I right in thinking you were recently scanning some photos and found a bunch of stuff from that session or from that, from that gig? Yes. I'm always, I was scanning stuff yesterday. I'm always looking for stuff actually that I haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always going through it and seeing what, I, what I've missed before. What can you remember about that gig? Well, I remember things like it was, um, one of the first big gigs I did and, uh, I got picked up. I, I was living in Dalston at the time on Sandringham Road, which at that time was really poor. It was all rented housing and sweatshops and everything. And a limo came to pick me up at about six o'clock in the morning <laughs> to drive me. It was sent by Polydor Records to drive me to, um, I can't remember the name of the place, uh, where we would meet the jam coach. So I went in a limo, Gary went in a limo, and we waited in this, in this freezing cold um, for the jam coach to turn up. And then we got on the jam coach and went up to Sheffield. So it was my first time in a limo for a start. And we were going up, we were driving into Sheffield in the coach. We were talking, chatting with Paul and that on the coach. And there were these kids, sort of parkers and stuff, walking over the bridge. I think it was a bridge and they were eating chips and Paul stopped the coach and he went down to the door and he waved them too. He said, come on, come, come on the coach. <laughs> and these kids just chucked their chips over the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> hard earned chips. And they just chucked them over and got on the coach. And there they were on the coach with Weller. I always say, tell that story because the one thing about the jam, which I really noticed because my, because I think because I came from being a fan, I was always really interested in the fans and I took a lot of photographs of people and fans. In fact, I've just this morning been collecting uh, new romantics, punks and mods for three publications. And I have a lot of pictures of the fans because I, you know, they're integral. Without the fans, none of this means anything. And I loved, I really noticed very quickly and I loved how the jam took care of their fans. They looked after them. They let them into the, all of the sound checks. They would all be standing outside. They knew they could get in. John would let people in the back. And it was just so refreshing and nice to see that from a band who were, they were reasonably big. Yeah, it's, I mean, can you imagine, like, yeah, I've said this before, you know, Ed Sheeran letting everybody in for the sound yeah. check or something. It just doesn't happen, yeah, does it? You know? the, yeah, I know. And, stopping and the, yeah, stopping the bus, the tour bus. So get, get rid of your chips, get on board. Yeah, it doesn't happen. And the fans all love that. You know, the fans felt part of the Jam family, That you know, with um, John and um, Anne and Jill at that time. And, you know, they, they felt like, the, the community, they felt part of the jam community. And I think that was really extraordinary. And I say that if there was a time machine, there are two gigs I would go back to 
And one is I was fortunate, lucky, because I queued up for the tickets, to be at Bowie's last Ziggy gig at Hammersmith Odeon on July the 3rd, 73. So I would go back to a Bowie Ziggy Stardust. Was that that was the night he killed off Ziggy? Was that? It was the night he said it's the last. Not only is it the last night of the tour, but it's the last. Wow. <laughs> and I was one of those wailing women. Um, but the other gig I would go to would be the jam, a jam, any jam gig really. But that last night in Brighton, which I didn't take photos at, I just loved it every minute of it. What was it about that band live then that was so different, so special for you? The first thing that comes to mind is that everyone sang every word to every song at a jam gig. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Participation, audience participation, you know. That was what was so refreshing about the whole punk thing. You know, we'd grown up with, because we all come from somewhere and there was this music before punk. It involves sitting down, often cross-legged on a floor. And, you know, you weren't, you weren't supposed to do anything except kind of enjoy the vibes. But that whole participation, whether that's kind of down the front, bashing and, you know, <laughs> was shaking and, you can't see the actions here, podcast yeah. listeners, but Virginia's back there. You're back in the front row. Aren't yeah, you? Back I, in the the front. I loved it down the front. I even loved to take pictures down the front. I would go in the pit, if there was a pit, which there wasn't always. There wasn't a pit. I would just happily go right down the front with all my cameras, getting gobbed on. Right, that's the worst thing. I remember seeing during lockdown, actually, I remember seeing a, a post from you, I think it would be on Instagram, where you said about, there were a couple of, you said, here's a couple of pics to remind ourselves of what we miss when there's no live music and why down the front is the only place to be at a gig. <laughs> Do you remember that's that? a good memory. It is. I mean, that's always the bit I want to go. If I can get front barrier these days so I can hold on to something, so that, that always helps. Otherwise, my feet get very tired. But yeah, you've got to be in the front, right? You've got to be down the front. Otherwise, you might as well be at home. You know, that's where it's all going on. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. did also say then, didn't I? I didn't miss the gobbing, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've never understood that. I've never understood that about that. Let's, <laughs> let's move on, really. Because the jam wasn't the work. The jam was not as bad as uh, the call the clash. Really? Oh, God. <laughs> now, look, there are a few photos I want to talk about. So let's see if we can, I can jog your memory. So there was the Rainbow Theatre. This was April 1980. There's a photo you've taken, Paul plugging his guitar in live on stage, which is like a really iconic shot. What do you remember about that? Uh, the gig was, I, I, you know, I like the Rainbow. It was, it was a good venue. There was a lot of gigs going on there at the time. I remember, because like, he did that a lot. And I remember always, and I've got a lot of pictures where I didn't quite get it. And I think even that one, it's not totally sharp. They were just great to see live, great to photograph live. There's another one in it as well, which um, lots of ladies and, and men listening to this will uh, love this shot. This is 1981, the Guildford Civic Hall, Mr. Weller, top off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Well, one is that Guildford was my local venue. That's where I first saw Bowie in 1973, May the 27th. So it, that's the home home turf for me. I remember I had friends who were outside. It was a really, really, really hot day. My sister and her boyfriend and some other people were outside waiting to get in for the sound check. And, and I've got pictures of them in doing the sound check. It was really hot. And Bruce is wearing the shortest shorts like people used to in the 70s. And yeah, during the gig, Weller took his top off. Yeah. And he did the, 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 Remember the, I don't remember the plasmatics, Wendy O'Williams, she did the black tape on her nipples and Weller came out. Obviously, he thought about this in advance because I can't remember whether he came out with his top on or he just took his top off and there was his nipples black taped as in <laughs> Wendy O'Williams. Brilliant. <laughs> That's so good. And it's a great shot because he's like surrounded by this, the, the, was the Vox amplifier down below and then there's the, this big Marshall stack as well. It's a brilliant <laughs> yeah. shot, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. And I read somewhere that around that time, taking a bit of a detour away from Mr. Weller, that um, you saw Prince and you photographed him in Amsterdam as well. I did, yeah. Without looking at my list, I couldn't tell you what the date was. But yeah, about that time, yeah. I didn't okay. know anything about Prince, actually. I mean, I, I did often find... <laughs> I did often find myself photographing people who I knew absolutely nothing about. <laughs> and Prince hadn't hadn't got on my radar at all at that point. That was really early days for him, wasn't it? I mean, that was pre-Purple Rain, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he played um, the, um, not the milk, the... Um, was it Paradiso? Paradiso. Very yeah. famous club, yeah. yeah. And it's not a big place. 
And I just remember thinking, if I'd seen Hendrix, you know, would I think this is like Hendrix? Because he was extraordinary and I've never seen anybody. Sounds really kind of cliche, but kind of be as one with their guitar on the stage. And I've seen a lot of guitarists, but seeing Prince was something different. And And it did bring to mind Hendrix, that whole thing of, you know, the guitar kind of appearing to be an extension of your body and... I know I really noticed that about Prince. And I photographed him live on stage and then backstage a bit. And those photos have been used a lot. And then we went back to, so it was with Tony Mitchell from Sounds and interviewed him in his hotel room. So I'm sitting on a bed with Prince in his hotel room, where he didn't want me to photograph him in there. And I seen him on stage and it's just like powerful extraordinary figure that was just emanating so much, I was going to say soul, but, you know, just so much power. And and then this little tiny, little tiny person <laughs> comes into the room. He's got a really little tiny voice. <laughs> and, uh, and that was Prince. That's brilliant, isn't it? The kind of flip side of the the artist on stage and where that comes from. And, and actually, Anne Weller, when I, when I had her, Paul's mum on, on the podcast, she was saying about Paul as that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As a youngster, she was like, he was such a shy little boy. The idea of him ever getting on stage and playing to crowds and stuff, just where did that come from? That wasn't him. And it seems like he's, even now, he's like a little bit shy in kind of company like that. It's funny, isn't it? The kind of flip side of the artist. But I remember, again, when you shared on one of the photos, the Prince photos on Instagram, this could be a whole episode of a podcast, but you said, I often wonder what sort of music the artists who died too soon will be making now. You know with certainty that Prince, Lennon, Bowie would still be knocking us sideways with their genius. I, I absolutely love that. But yeah, that's a huge debate, isn't it? But you're absolutely right. They'd still be knocking it out of the park, wouldn't they? I mean, Bowie's last album, last couple of albums were sensational. I know. Some people just had, I mean, Bowie definitely, and I think Lennon and, and Prince definitely, just had an ability to know what was coming. I mean, you, you know, some of the stuff Bowie said about the internet and and. It's extraordinary when you, when you, you know, you read back on that now. And Lennon always sort of kept with the times and, and moved forward. I couldn't say all his peers did. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, of all of them, Lennon and Harrison, I guess, would be the ones I'd be interested in those four. Um, but yeah, I, it would be interesting. And, you know, Hendrix is another one, I guess. You know, what, what would he have been doing? Absolutely. I want to ask you about studio time with Mr. Weller as well. So we talked about live music and the jam and that impact it had on you. But you spent time in the studio taking photos of Paul as well. And there's a, there's a wonderful story around Air Studios in 1982. <laughs> and this story about Mr. Weller and Paul McCartney. Please tell me this. This is fabulous. Well, this leads on from what I was just saying. So I'm in there uh, waiting to photograph Weller for a smash hits feature. Paul McCartney comes in. This in this sort of little side room. Paul McCartney comes in. And Thatcher is on the telly. And he does a Sieg Heil to Thatcher on the telly for a start. Which, But I'm in the room with Paul McCartney. And I've got all my cameras. And I'm a rock photographer. And there is one of the Beatles, one of the most famous, recognisable people in the world in the 20th century. And do I take a photo of Paul McCartney? Didn't do that. <laughs> Somebody else that day did take a photo because they were exactly the same clothes of Paul McCartney and Weller. 
I was going to say, because Weller's obviously a massive Beatles head I, and, and McCartney's his favourite and there's the opportunity, the two of them. They weren't both together in the same room at the same time, but, you know, somebody else got that picture that day. I didn't even think about it because what I did think was it wasn't, this wasn't long before the Frog Chorus. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, I don't know, he was kind of being a bit of a tosser. The Beatles hadn't had that kind of, um, what's that word, that reevaluation of their music. They, were, they weren't cool. It wasn't cool to like the Beatles in the early 80s, was it really? That's very kind of you. And that's a very kind, useful excuse that I shall always use from now on. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, the next time I sat in a room with Paul McCartney was actually at the preview for his goodbye to What's It Street film that he made. Oh, um, give my regards to Broad Street. And the the little film that accompanied that was the Frog Chorus film. Oh, right. And, you know, I I just, there was no respect. There was, so, um, yeah, there we go. Missed opportunity. That was my first, that was my first Paul McCartney album, that album. And it's just packed full of most of it reversioning of Beatles songs, which I hadn't realized at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Wanderlust. Oh no, that's Wings, I think. Lots of stuff that's kind of basically just rehashing stuff. But I hadn't realized. I thought it was, you know, just a Paul McCartney album, really. He'd done Wings and I wasn't interested in Wings. I mean, Wings were just a pop band. So yeah, I know. It's there. There we go. (laughs) <laughs> and you were there for Smash Hits, and this was a this was a series of photos that you took for uh, something called uh, Favorite Things. Was that right? Yeah, I did a few series of Smash Hits of rock stars and their mums, and rock stars and their cars, and one was rock stars and their favorite things. And can you remember what Paul said in the article or what he picked? He had. I'd have to look at the picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had was it a pair of sunglasses? Just trying to find the contact sheets. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah, so what did he have? He's got, just looking at the contact sheet, there's a jacket. It's in black and white, so it's a bit difficult. There's a jacket and three singles, and I can't actually make out the titles of them from the contact sheets. Do you know what? One of the people listening, and I'll put this out on Twitter, no will ha- we'll have a copy of that smash shit still saved. Yeah. Right? We'll have to get it for the show notes. There was a photo with the, this is quite famous as well, the, the Weller Woking sweatshirt, which yes. which wasn't his, right? He didn't go around wearing that all the time. He was wearing it. Oh, did I he think... came in wearing it, did he? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. That, again, that was in the studios. That was in Polygram, I think. Um, and hang on, there's the pictures of him with his. No, I didn't, I didn't ask him to wear it. His I assume somebody had given it to him or something for a shoot. I didn't realize it was. <laughs> no, I wasn't that into Oh, here we go. There's more things. There's some cufflinks. Oh, he's wearing the jacket now. There's some cufflinks. There's one, two, three, four, five singles and a box with something in it. Yeah. Somewhat, you probably, you look, you can look up in the Smash Hicks archives and find those. And he's wearing the Weller Woking shirt under the jacket in that. And then I got pictures of him just wearing the Weller Woking shirt. And how did you find him in those kind of environments uh, outside? Obviously, this is different to him live on stage. You're having to direct him more. You're having to kind of tell him what you want out of the shot more, right? Yeah, I was never very good at that, actually. I was better with people who knew what they wanted to do. Um, the f- kind of photography I really like is sort of more reportage stuff. I'm not good. I, I'm, you know, I never did studio stuff because I didn't feel comfortable directing and, um, so I liked, you know, photographing people live and lots of people like Madness knew exactly what they wanted to do all the time. But Paul was easy. Paul wasn't difficult. He was always very nice, very kind. And I mean, maybe I, I can't remember. Maybe I said, you know, just oh, put you against that wall or something. But most of these people had a better idea of how they wanted to to look in the photos anyway if they didn't then i'd manage now you mentioned the final yeah. jam gig which i know you didn't take photos of in brighton but you were there that yeah. final tour there are photos there's a brilliant photo of paul with this he's got this belt on which says rubber soul on it it's this yeah. is wembley this is backstage wembley arena yeah. in december 1982 you took shots around that time of those final jam dates as well yeah it was it was a sad thing and uh wembley was strange because you know it's such a big venue did they do two nights at wembley or I think I did more than that, yeah. Three, was it three nights? Yeah. And I think that was the last night at Wembley. And people, you know, there were people from all over the world there. It was amazing. Paul was in a really good mood at Wembley. There was really a a, a big, <laughs> you know, backstage, there was 
Bruce and and uh, Rick were, you know, what the fuck are we going to do? You know, this is terrible. And Paul was in a, I've never seen Paul so happy as he was at Wembley. He was just, he was charming. He was lovely. He was bright. He was really, really smiling. He was obviously very excited about, you know, what we was going to do next. Whereas the atmosphere elsewhere in the in the room wasn't quite so positive. But Brighton was great. So I, I went down to Brighton and I didn't have a ticket, but like lots of other people just knocked on the back door and John let us in <laughs> and um, then pushed my way right down the front and stood at the front singing every single song. <laughs> I love that. How did you feel about the Style Council? Were they Did they rock your world? No. Um, no, they didn't. I, I, you know, I didn't sort of... I didn't pay them probably enough attention. I didn't pay them attention really. Um, I loved the jam. I was, you know, I was definitely a jam fan. Uh, I was interested in the style council and I've always been, I don't know, I just think Paul's a genius. He's an absolute genius and I haven't followed what he's done and I haven't bought everything or heard everything by any means. You know, when I hear his stuff and, you know, he's got a new album out and I hear bits of that, I'm always Nine times out of ten, I think, God, you just keep on doing it. It's just you're never going to lose it, and still have a following as well. Still, because he's he's great. Oh, first and foremost, it seems he's creating that music for himself, but actually, he still has the people who want to follow him, and, and very Bowie-like in that sense. I think, yeah, just keep pushing forward, keep pushing the boundaries and stuff. And you and you have taken photos of Weller Solo. I don't know how, how early on did you get? Were you involved in the kind of you know in those early days, Wildwood Stanley Road period, or did it come much later? Um. I remember going to see him in the studio with um, Mick Tolbert, sort of not long after the jam had finished. He wanted to see some contact shoots and there was him and Mick in the studio and, and they were, you know, obviously working on stuff, stuff for Style Council and, and they play, they were playing some stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is really different, but this is going to be interesting. And then I didn't see him for, because I mean, what year was that? I, 1985, I, uh, had started having babies. Sounds like I had loads, but I had a baby in 1985 and I didn't, you know, I didn't photograph any gigs for a very long time. So it was years and years and years later, I got to see him in Plymouth and he does, he's one of the few people who comes down to the West Country. He always does Plymouth and I respect him for that as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, my first gig was I was living in Somerset and went to Paul Art Centre was my first Weller gig, 1992, I think. But you're right, he still does do the West Country and play, even play Cornwall some of the four I think, and right? He does, and I've seen him in Cornwall as well, and most people don't. Yeah, that's really nice and it's really appreciated because usually we have to go to Bristol to see people at least. So, um, And the photos of Plymouth would have been, I think it was 2007, so this is pre-22 Dreams. It's the As Is Now period, so Steve White's still in the band, and it was the kind of final iteration of that band before Damon Minchella leaves, Steve White leaves, and they shake things up again, which is constantly doing. So you did that, so, and then I think more recently you did The Kind Revolution as well, so you've taken shots of Paul live as a solo artist in that time too. I have. I'm always going to be interested in what he does. You know, it's not, it's not going to be a Paul McCartney moment for me and Paul. Um, no, I'm always interested. And uh, yeah, I'm just having a look. The ones from Bristol, April 2017. Yeah, that's right. Kind of revolution ones. That's the last time I saw him, actually. Wow. That time I got to see him again. It is about time, yeah. Well, he's still and he's still gigging, still touring, still really music and all that. It's incredible, really. But one of the interesting, obviously, we had this period of lockdown, which for lots of musicians, I mean, for, yeah, for everybody was bloody awful. But from photographers that I've spoken to, it seemed like it was also a period where you could go back into your archive and start kind of looking at stuff that you never got time to do, like cataloging it and all that. And it was really interesting talking to Dennis Monday on the podcast from his experience because he was talking about the like, just how crap record company and music magazine archives were of like because you a lot of the time you were commissioned by them so you were taking photos for them they weren't necessarily your photos they were these kind of archives just don't exist right they though they didn't value these shots and so a lot of your work you can't find so a lot of your work's like the black and white stuff but not the color right would that be right for me i wasn't commissioned um ever so my i owned all of the pictures that i took i bought the film it is a thing this comes up a lot these days because we find our pictures is being used all over the place and especially you know when they read books reproduce pages from the magazines and things so copyright you know comes mm. up as an issue 
issue. In fact, I was on something last week about this. For me, I own all the work that I took because I bought the film and I only got paid for whatever was published. So I could be away for three or four days. Um, they might use only one picture. And I'd only get one payments for one pitch, or they might use five or six and I'd get paid for those. And then they'd get reused. I wasn't very savvy about the business. For me, like, you know, I was just so grateful to be doing this. I was not savvy business wise. You know, if I'm talking to my num, my younger self now about how I was working then, I'd be absolutely horrified at what I let happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the archives. So there were huge archives of prints, handmade prints that we made in our dark rooms. And these have disappeared. They've completely vanished. For me, like I've got more my black and white negatives, so I can scan those. And if I had a dark room, which I haven't, I could print again. But my colour stuff, that was all originals that went to the music papers. And most of that has disappeared. And I had a conversation with Alan Lewis, who was the editor of Sounds. He was in Morgan Grampy and he was very influential. Lots of people cite him as, you know, having been significant in their careers. And he died a few years ago. But I spoke to him about 10 years ago and he said, it's absolutely criminal, you know, how we treated people's photographs. They just went in the bin. People used to come in, fans used to come in and help themselves out of the archives. So you'd go to the Sex Pistols archives that sounds, there'd be nothing in it. Absolutely right. nothing. <laughs> oh Same as The Clash, nothing in it. Because the fans would come in, they'd get in through the doors and they'd come in. So we'd go and see Gary Bushel and they'd nip upstairs and help themselves. And the same with Smash Hits. I spent quite a long time trying to trace the Smash Hits archive in which I have got thousands of handmade bromide black and white prints. I can't find it. No idea what happened to it. I've let it go now. So I do have some colour and the black and white stuff is mine. And and that's my living. You know, my archive is, is my living. And it's um it's kind of feels very fortunate that I have this, really. Well, and bloody fabulous it is too. There's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned sounds again then and this kind of power of the music press. There was this wonderful front cover, which again, I think you shared recently on Instagram, which was March 1978. Let me take you back there. There was this cover where it said, is this the future of rock and roll? Racism and your music face to face with the front. And this was just a few weeks after yeah. the, the March to Victoria Park, which has come up on the podcast, this Rock Against Racism yeah. uh, carnival, rather. And this incredible cover for this music paper, yeah. which was essentially, it was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was photos of musicians who had been deported. So we had people like um, Ari Up from The Slits, you know, Freddie Mercury was a full lineup, people like that, right? I know the cover, right, so I'm looking at that now. And they're people who would be deported if the National Front got into power. Oh, is that what it was? Right. Yeah. So... They, the National Front at that time were a genuine threat to British politics. And you had people like Eric Clapton, who came out and said how he supported Enoch Powell, who had made the Rivers of Blood speech. And it was a very, very frightening time. You know, the rhetoric is the same as it is now, basically, you know, about invasion and uh, the, the language that is used. It's incredible, you know, really that what short memories people have that, you know, we talk about the Holocaust in terms of, you know, how could we have allowed this to happen? And yet people are still fleeing for their lives with nothing but the clothes they wear and their children and babies from situations where they will be, where they are in grave danger of being killed or tortured because of their ethnicity or their religion. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is still very relevant now. But it was hard-hitting. And out of this, of course, came this out of this atmosphere of we're not just going to stand back and let powerful, influential people like Eric Clapton um, take the youth along with them in this disgusting language. And Rock Against Racism was formed as a direct response to that, which was extraordinary. Rock Against Racism put on gigs and tours that went up and down the whole country, involved the most ex amazing lineups of musicians, the carnivals. There was the one you mentioned in 1970. I was actually in America when that happened, but I went to the second one in Brixton. And the, the tours they did, which ended up with a big gig at Alexandra Palace, and the marches and demonstrations, and kids really got behind that. It gave them something to rally behind that was, we're not going to accept this. And I mean, I, actually yesterday I was going through contact sheets of the riots at that time in 1978 when there were riots up and down the country. And, you know, people would go out to stop the NF holding meetings in their neighbourhoods and inciting violence aimed at their neighbours. 
But, you know, then there was Southall where somebody who I knew vaguely got killed by the police. He went out to oppose the fascists holding a meeting in Southall Town Hall and died at the end of the day. It was a really scary time. But, you know, we need to, we need to take notice of this because the language that is being used today is the same. Yeah. And also, I think the different that that idea between like we seem to be so passive now in terms of everything that's happening in the world, like coming at us with you know, the, the cost of living crisis, the fuel, like and we're not we feel like we're powerless and we're not doing anything. Whereas that's not that long ago where people felt that they could march, they could stand up for things they believed in. We just seem to kind of sit back and take everything these days. So, so to me, and they did, and that's sort of where I came from because as I was starting to take pictures on the sounds, I was learning very, very basic photography. It's socialist worker. That's kind of where I come from. And I photographed a lot of demos and riots and picket lines. You couldn't, honestly, I mean, you, you couldn't go down the street without coming across a picket line or a demo marching in one direction or another in the late 70s. And there was a there was an attitude of, you know, and there was anti-apartheid, a lot of it stuff, which you just think, oh, still got that. You know, nothing's much changed. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, people have... They have forgotten how to be angry and that basically these people are put in power by us. And if we don't like what they're doing, we have the power to change that. There's a fabulous book. Daniel Rachel has been on the podcast. I'm not yeah. sure if you're aware of Daniel. Your, 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 yeah, face yeah. Is, your face is probably in the book. The walls come tumbling down book. And yeah. I, I told my mum about the Eric Clapton thing because she's an Eric Clapton fan and she put all his, his albums in the bin, which I thought was a lovely result. <laughs> Not your mum or Daniel Rachel's mum? No, no, my my mum. She yeah, she literally went and got all really? her CDs, all her albums, and she put them all in the bin. <laughs> I love your mum. She was disgusted, absolutely disgusted. Yeah. This has been so lovely having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My goodness me, what an amazing career. What a bunch of brilliant stories. I have two final questions for you before you go though, all right? You are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the star council or solo. What are you going to go with? Oh, could you not have given me this as my homework? Um... <laughs> We didn't talk too much about the music, actually. We, it's in the songs uh, that really connected with you from the jam. What were what were they? I mean, I just loved. I loved them all. I loved singing them all so much. I guess Tube Station would be like it's got to be up there. And then you know, like English Rose, you know, love songs. You know, that's hard to beat that as a love song, isn't it? Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> I'll let you have those entries. If you were to pick one, would it be Tube Station? Well, you've I got Matt. You've got yeah. Malice. You've got That's Entertainment. I mean, God, the list goes on. Doesn't I know, it? and they're also good to sing along to. So, yeah. Okay. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself and hear your stories about your career, your connections with Mr. Weller. But my big regret: I gave up my radio career ten years ago with one big regret, which is I never got to interview Paul Weller. That's basically the reason why I created this podcast. So we can get that interview, fingers crossed, in 2023. Come on, Paul, if you're listening. Um, if it happens, come on, Paul. Come on. I mean, how, much, how much work does a man need to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got back in the day, just used to rock up and you get an interview yeah. for a fanzine, for Christ's sake, you know. Uh, that is. That is exactly how it used to work, Dan. I, I, was, saying, I, was, I was doing some stuff yesterday. I was saying to my partner, oh, my God, I just walked into the Ritz. I was doing a feature on how the rich spend their summer. I walked into the Ritz and I just took photos of him. I went into hospitals and took pictures of patients and, and children in schools. You know, nobody said, oh, no, no, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. safety yeah, yeah. or privacy or anything. It was that easy. Have you tried that? Have you tried just rocking up outside his door? or <laughs> With a tape recorder. Yeah, I thought of that. That's maybe a new approach. We'll see how we go on. Now, if it happens, what should I ask him? What would you like to know? Oh, that's such a kind question. As I, I, um, but... <laughs> Does he does he remember all his children's birthdays? Because I struggled with that. He's got loads more than me. <laughs> he's got eight. How many of well, you? Well, he's got eight. I've got three, and it's the grandchildren. I really struggle with the grandchildren's birthdays. So good luck with that, Paul. <laughs> Any tips? What do you? How do you manage it? <laughs> I've got it written down in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, too many times I've said I said oh happy birthday for being six when they're actually seven or something I've got it wrong so many times that I now have it written down and every year I write the date the, the <laughs> age oh, brilliant and the fact it's right in front of you through osmosis it eventually kind of sinks in as well right <laughs> you'd, you'd hope so but I <laughs> oh, hey look this has been so lovely having you on thank you so much for your time really appreciate it Thank you, Dan. It's really kind of you to ask me and um, thank you so much. My thanks once again to Virginia Turbot for joining me on the podcast. Amazing stories, fascinating stuff. What a guest. So head to my website, 
for the show notes to this podcast episode, including links to some of the photos that we talked about as well. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, whilst you're there, you can show your support by heading to my store. We have exclusive merchandise available for you, including our very first official podcast mug and you can buy a virtual coffee as well on the roll call for doing exactly that this week hello to smeg from the 829 club says great podcast only 127 more to catch up on (laughs) well done smeg welcome to the club hello to jen hi to rob atkins says cheers dan love the podcast such an interesting array of people i've just got to start budgeting better for the additional vinyl tickets and downloads you've brought into my life yep i know that feeling rob thank you to stephen cartwright cheers for your virtual coffee Hi to Stu Burns. Hello, Colin. Hello, Jane the Jam Tart with a heart. Hello to Nick Keane. Hello to Andy Vic7, who says, Good to say hello as Steve's 60th on your way out. Superb listening. Keep the faith. Cheers, Andy. Lovely to meet you too. Hello to Jeff, who says, Thanks from one of Paul's longest running supporters in the USA. First contact was the album In the City as a college radio DJ in 1977. Second was experiencing the jam getting booed off the stage opening for Angel and the Gods in Allentown in 1978. (laughs) Truly crushing. Wow, thank you for that, Jeff. Unbelievable. Alex McLaughlin says, Great episode with Terry Edwards. Yes, again, a musician who is just a name on an album cover to me. Turns out to be a top bloke and fascinating guest. And of course, will now lead down a rabbit hole of discovery. Cheers. Thumbs up. Thank you, Alex. I love that. That's the whole point of this podcast, really. Yeah, yeah. And getting the final conversation, the final interview with Mr. Weller, of course. Hello to Roger Clark. Thanks for your virtual coffee. Hi to Phil Baker, who says Bill's podcast was brilliant. Keep up the great work, Dan. Well, thank you for all your virtual coffees. Much appreciated. Cheers for your support. Head to my website to find out more details. Just click on the store button. And whilst you're there, make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on Apple, on Spotify, on Google and more. You can also find me on social media. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.